I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book one, Christy's Great Idea. Great idea indeed. (laughs) So one of the gimmicks we're going to do on our podcast in lieu of sort of reading the official summary or giving a a more substantive summary is we're each going to do, prepare in advance a one sentence summary of the plot, which will sort of tease our perspectives and how we're reading them. Some will be funnier than others. (laughs) This is a, a, as an introductory book, this one was a little bit harder to do for me personally, but um, who wants to go first? Should I? Sure. Should I do two? I wrote two. <laughs> it's a little bit overachieving, Dawn, but that's fine. We can do two. Overachiever? I don't remember this. See, no. this is why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. Okay. Um, I did one from Watson's perspective and one from Stacy's. <laughs> so I'll start with Watson. Wait, uh, just a back sentence up. summary. Watson is Christie's future mom's boyfriend Christy's mom's boyfriend yes yes um yes we learn at the beginning of the book that they've been dating for four months only lots to come uh okay divorcee with part-time custody of his children uses his girlfriend's kids newly formed babysitting club as a way to gain favor with the family before getting engaged and potentially uprooting them to the rich part of town Ooh, yeah. yeah, I would like to read Watson's version of this story. <laughs> All right, what's your Stacy one? Oh, my Stacy one is middle schooler from New York City moves to the burbs to hide mysterious illness and learns a lesson about deceit on her road to making new friends. Oh, very nice. Uh, I, I kept mine centered on Christy, as I want to do, um, which is, Girl on the cusp of puberty founds business venture amid several interpersonal transitions. Wow. Mine's a bit less academic. Um, <laughs> my summary is four friends start a babysitter's club. <laughs> I think yours is the most useful and descriptive. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so before we go any further... I think we should probably tell you guys a little bit about the members of this podcast. So my name is Annie Chukala. I'm a freelance writer, a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And I'm Esme Schaller. I'm an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. And I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, please check out the prologue episode of our podcast. Uh, And if you couldn't tell, those are homages to our Babysitter's Club characters. (laughs) (laughs) So, Esme, why don't we talk about what's going on psychologically in this book, in Christy's Great Idea? Yeah, I was actually really impressed with how much is going on. I felt like Anna Martin, you know, I know writing these books was sort of a, you know, she was approached 
from Scholastic to, to write them, but I felt like she put a lot of heart and soul into them and really did a nice job of capturing um, that end of seventh grade feeling. So she, you know, uh, there's there are a lot of transitions. That's why I highlighted transitions in my one sentence summary. Um, and, you know, being 12 is really hard. And there is this sort of stuck place where you can be Still ah. a kid, ha, ah, stuck, comes up for the first time. You know, um, Christy highlights a lot how she's the shortest in her grade and how she and Marianne just stopped playing with dolls last summer. And she's got all of these vestiges of childhood still kind of pulling on her. But then Claudia is so sophisticated now and like has grown up in these ways that she doesn't understand and is sitting with boys. And she's just kind of stuck there in the middle and not sure how to proceed. But at the same time, she has this like drive and this confidence um, that she's sort of like trying to hang on to as opposed to slipping into puberty. So I, I, like, um, you know, we, we there's a lot of data showing that um, the multiple transitions in middle school are much harder for girls than for boys. And particularly when like the onset of your period, menarche lines up with the transition to a new school, um, yeah. that's puts girls at risk. It actually but- increases risk of depression and other problems. But none of these girls ever get their period for like 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> for 35 years. <laughs> Fair enough. It is not discussed, but I feel like it's implied that Christy does not have her period <laughs> and that Claudia and Stacey do. That's what I feel like is implied. Right. Um, so I think they just, they, they captured that. And then of course she has all these really big transitions going on with her family. So when we start the book, Chris, we, we hear that Christy's parents are divorced. Her dad's been sort of missing, um, really kind of the traditional deadbeat dad for a long time. She's used to this life where she's the only other kind of responsible one in some ways. You know, Charlie and Sam are there and they help out with her younger brother, David Michael, her two older brothers. But she's got this family of five that she's used to. And then her mom um, is falling in love and is, is uh, you know, by the end of the book is engaged to this, this rich dude, Watson. And so I just feel like she did a really... Um, admirable job of capturing all of these pieces. So listeners, if we go back to our prologue and we talk about ourselves a little bit more, Esme is the self-described Christy, but Esme, you talk about how in the seventh grade you decided enough of this bullshit, I'm going to take life by the horns (laughs) and be less of a Mary Ann and become more of a Christy, which, you know, so do you think it's possible... That Christy, Christy's life before we get to know her in these books, you know, when her parents were still married, do you think a divorce could get her to change or like be more controlling or try to make sense of the chaos in her family life? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, so I think they mentioned several times that her parents divorced when David Michael was a baby, right? So if David Michael's six in this book and Christy's 12, then they they would have divorced when Christy was six or seven, right? Um, which, you know, I think Emily could speak more to that experience than, than I could um, in terms of her own kind of family stuff. But I think, um, you know, but she, I don't remember my parents getting divorced and I don't have a deadbeat dad, so... That's true. (laughs) Your dad stayed very much around. Um, But I think that, um, 
Yeah, I think it also, I do wonder, and Emily may be able to speak about this a little bit, I also wonder about the gender politics of, you know, Christy is hyper-responsible. And, like, to Sam and Charlie's credit, they also each watch David Michael one night a week and stuff, and I'm sure they're not, like, they seem like good dudes, which is another thing I really appreciate about, like, the teenagers in these books are generally portrayed as like reasonable people, which the data show most teenagers are, but we have this sort of cultural narrative that, you know, you turn 13 and you go insane until you turn 20, which is not the case. So I actually really like the portrayal of Sam and Charlie as like nice guys. But I also wonder about like, she's got this single mom who's a professional who's holding this big family together and she's a babysitter and she's a girl and she like, she does a lot for the family. And so I I don't know if it's more her trying to wrest control from a chaotic situation or more just her being kind of parentified and feeling responsible for taking care of David Michael. Like at least she had a dad for a few years and feeling like he got a raw deal. And so they, it seems like all three of them, Christy and Sam and Charlie all kind of surround David Michael and work to be extra parents for him. I was thinking of how she describes herself uh, or how she draws on her mom's sort of casting of her as impulsive. And she's like, doesn't seem to know whether that like designation matches her own experience of like why she's doing things. Like she's constantly kind of like doing actions that she then explains as something she might have regretted or, or she doesn't know why she did things, which I think is interesting. And I, yeah. I was wondering if that's like a personality tick or like an, uh, like a learning thing or like a developmental thing. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting question. And I I also really love that because, so I work with teens that are very, very impulsive and that, um, you know, have, uh, you know, much more difficulty restraining their impulses than Chrissy do and do dangerous things with their impulses. And I think I really liked the idea that Christy is like, has this kind of metacognition about her impulsivity and then she still can't help it sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think it's in this book where she describes like, I knew I shouldn't say it, but I was just going to say it and I couldn't stop it. And here it comes. And she says something to Stacy about her mystery illness, um, which we'll later talk a little bit more about. Um, but I, I like that. I think it is developmental, you know, you, you know, people are not good at controlling all of their behaviors early on. And I like that it's sort of at odds with her because she's also clearly a really responsible, like she's a good kid, you know, air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's a good kid that also can get in trouble for cheering in the classroom when the school day ends in the first chapter mm-hmm. and has to write an essay about decorum. And I, I, I love that because I think we're um, very often we want to draw lines in, uh, you know, we have a pretty black and white society. You guys may have noticed, um, we like people to be all good or all bad. And so I think, and I think sometimes that's really a problem in schools. Like this is a good student and a good kid, and this is not. And so I really like that she gets in trouble in the first chapter, but she's not like a bad kid. And that's very clear throughout. Like she gets in trouble, she does her punishment and then she goes along. Yeah. I like how Christy and her big mouth, um, she's very immediately reflective <laughs> of everything she mm-hmm. does. And she like does something and she's like, wait, why did I do that? She's mm-hmm. like, Oh, maybe I didn't handle that. Right. Like she's very mature in that way. And then she tries to like, right. Yeah. Wrong. yeah. I think her I, notes are kind of hilarious too. She's like, 
like she recognizes the behavior and then instead of like her way of kind of addressing that or redressing it rather is to like write a note. Yeah. <laughs> really oh my cute. God. Yeah. She, uh, it made me, it made me cry her last note to Watson. Um, it just like broke my heart and I wrote down like, this is why I work with teenagers because they do this kind of stuff all the time. You guys, they're so adorable. I love them so much. And so, you know, she's like super mean to Watson and she like runs out of the room when they announce that he's they're going to get engaged and then she writes this little note to him where she's like dear watson the next time you need a babysitter for karen and andrew please call me first i would be happy to do the job yours truly christy p.s <laughs> the fondue was fun p.p.s <laughs> i like your house p.p.p.s if you and mom want to get married it's okay with me <laughs> i was like dying it's so (laughs) lovely and that's exactly um I just you know and some people have criticized the books I think for being like too nice or like in this like idyllic suburban world and of course there are some problems with that as well but I I do think that Anna Martin addresses them but that to me is just like a perfect portrait of 12 like she couldn't help it in the moment and she was so scared about this big transition and all these things in her life changing and like who is this Watson dude and then so it all comes out and then she also knows like you know to me this note says like I understand that you're not a bad dude my mom deserves to be happy I'll figure it out you know (laughs) in this very sweet way I do think it's funny though that in the beginning of the book when she's like mad about him that one of the things uh well, it's interesting because her resentment part of it seems to be tied up in the fact that he is a good father. So he's she's like trying to portray him as not one as a kind of, you know, absolutely compensating there. But I love when she's like, plus he's bald. So, <laughs> so that like speaks for itself as a negative, like a reason not yeah. to like him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. bald. So there's Gross. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so funny. I love how um, just her, the signifiers though, for that uneven development and the process of maturity are so funny to me. Like the way she describes Claudia's makeup. Uh-huh. It's like, she's, I can't remember exactly what the quote is, but she's like, she had blue stuff on her eyelid and gold stuff above her eyes. And I think the color she uses is like magenta on her cheeks. And I was like, what is that real makeup? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's well, and I think it's also letting us know who Claudia is, right? right? Is that I think she's trying to imply that it's really wild, but it's also clearly not something Christy knows anything about. So it's like a little bit of both, which I think she <laughs> sneaks in there very nicely. Yeah, so yeah. funny. Yeah, so I thought I thought she did a good job today. A plus, no, no um, obvious problems in how she described them and their development. I thought she really captured a time very nicely. And it made me wish that more of the grade, more of the books took place in seventh grade. Cause I think mm. that's a really big transition year. And since they're only in seventh grade for like 10 books and then they go to eighth grade, I was like, Oh, I yeah. like the seventh grade time. <laughs> Wait, what about, um, Anne's question about how she talks to Stacey? Oh yes. So as we mentioned earlier that Stacy has a big secret that we'll talk about in episode three. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but we, a, we do find out at the end of this book what it is, is though. Um, 
So um, basically, Stacy is mysterious about her eating habits. And, you know, part of the Babysitter's Club is they have like pizza parties. And since Claudia hides candy around her room, they eat a lot of candy during their Babysitter's Club meetings. And Stacy always turns it down. And basically, Christy is just says to Stacy, are you on a diet? You're so skinny. Are you anorexic? <laughs> and it's kind of like, yeah, oh, like, is that... I mean, do you think that was portrayed like how a 12 year old might confront their friend? Whereas I would think that no one would talk about it and just try to like ignore it and sweep it under the rug kind of. Well, I also cracked up that her, Christy's like, the first thing she says is, does your mom know <laughs> yeah. you're on a diet? I'm like, <laughs> See, and I thought that was perfect. And I think your question is like, is that how a young 12 year old would address it versus a 13 or 14 year old. Mm. And I think you're absolutely right for a slightly older adolescent. It would be like, yeah, I shouldn't talk about that. But you uh-huh. th- think about how close Christy still is to her mom and to David Michael. And like, to me, that was like a very like kid reaction. Like mm-hmm. I could see, you know, one of my kids who's, you know, like my nine year old being like, oh, but you know, you shouldn't, you know, there's still like what parents say is still super important to her. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she knows diets are bad and they're not good for growing kids. And so she's parroting that back. Like, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be on a diet. Um, Whereas Claudia is like, Christy, what are you doing? You know, Claudia already knows, like, be cool. Don't talk about those things. I get my period. You don't talk about that. Right. <laughs> but really, no, I, I think there's a lot of really nice, subtle ways that she portrays that. And I do think that, um, you know, partly it's Christy's personality, but partly her personality is based on the fact that she's still in little kid land. And we know that that's actually protective. That's protective against eating disorders. It's protective against depression and other forms of adolescent psychopathology. Um, later, later periods and later development, later puberty, um, kids tend to do better emotionally. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, which there's some, there's some curiosity if that's, you know, because we've been seeing periods getting lower and lower for a variety of reasons that are unclear, if that has part to do with our increasing adolescent mental health crisis. Sorry, I took it, took it to a down place there. Well, um, now, I'm I, like, now I'm like, hmm, I wonder which of them would have gone on to be a depressed teenager. <laughs> well, Mallory. Mallory. Um, <laughs> we haven't met Mallory yet. I know, I know. I can't wait till we get to the Pikes. I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, honestly, though, these four girls all have a lot of protective factors against depression. We can we can talk about that later. But all right. Um, enough psychology. What what was going on here sociopolitically in this book? Well, it's actually really funny that you brought up Charlie and Sam because I was just reading through it again this morning because I'm bored. <laughs> and I it's noticed, awesome. Well, yeah. I know, but I, I already read it in preparation for the episode. And again, this morning, I was like, oh, I have nothing else to read. So let's read the Mulder yeah. Club. Um, but I was thinking on the second read, how interesting it is the way that Charlie and Sam are portrayed as opposed to Janine, that, that there's all this kind of like, like hangups around Janine's genius and all this stuff that like, they sort of I don't know. She doesn't get to be like a, a like hero of a sibling of a big sibling, and for some reason, and the boys get to be fun and they get to be loved. And I was like, that's kind of stuck out to me on this read that I didn't notice yeah. the first time. And I'm curious to see like how I know we you know meet we get to learn more about Janine and Claudia's relationship yeah. later on, but I didn't remember that like antagonism toward her being so strong so early. 
Yeah. She's like yeah. clearly a villain. Yeah. Why? <laughs> but because women think, aren't supposed to be that smart. Yeah. But don't, I mean, from my perspective, um, I think it Janina's represents kind of like the stereotypical Asian student that Claudia isn't. Mm-hmm. So there's contrast. It just should, I think to me, it's more about the contrast between this is like what you're supposed to be mm-hmm. if you're an Asian student and then Claudia is like different. So her like their conflict is more about establishing Claudia as like not a well stereotype I'm, or something. That's the way I I interpreted it. As a, as a kid, you know, yeah, and maybe even sense. now, because yeah. I mean, I'm someone who grew up with an older sibling who wasn't, who wasn't mean, or maybe a, actually he was mean. I, he, was kind of, he was pretty mean. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know if he's Scott, but he was kind of an a-hole when we were growing up. Yeah. Uh, a lot of teasing and stuff, but you know, my brother was like valedictorian. He was kind of like more similar to Esme in high school where he got straight A's and like was very involved in extracurricular activities, got a lot of scholarships. All the teachers For loved some him. Reason, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I was the younger sibling who kind of was not that I didn't get, I get, I got good grades, but not as good, you know? So there, I, I definitely related to Claudia in that way of like, Oh, I'm not living up to these certain expectations. I love birth order tropes and I'm like really <laughs> excited to see if they, uh, how they develop in these. I, I just love birth order as an explanation for everything. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> of course you do. You're an eldest. Yeah. <laughs> I am. Yeah. I'm an elder sibling. But, but, but Christy doesn't fit it at all. Christy's not a middle. Christy acts know. like an eldest or an only. But I think we're getting into that gender difference again. Like I think she's like. She's the only girl. Yeah, but if she were a boy, like a lot of the things that she'd be doing would would be kind of stereotypical middle child. It's like she's the one who throws a fit about, you know, like things changing. Like she's the one who I mean, I guess that's just an age thing too, yeah. maybe. I don't I know. I feel obliged as the psychologist in the room to insert that the you you I'm glad you called them tropes and that birth order has no uh basis in science oh, anymore. I know. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but as long as we talk about it as a form of astrology, I'm fine. I just want to like have that there. That yeah. This is not an evidence-based uh, no, no. thing. Um, I also thought the portrayal of Mrs. Porter was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Say more. Like, why is she a witch? <laughs> she lives alone and she's old. I mean, and even the descriptor, she's like wearing all black and she has a wart on her nose. And that, that like somehow right. makes her evil. Like what? I Poor woman. She's just like, trying to rake her garden and some badass cat is like tearing up her plants. Like, so and Mrs. Porter, children- <laughs> Mrs. Porter is Watson's next door neighbor um, who his daughter Karen refers to as morbid a destiny. Um, and this is the first time we meet her. But yeah, I hear you, Emily. I had some empathy for her too, but I have to say in this book compared to later books, she seems pretty witchy. Like I was kind of convinced that she put a spell on Boo Boo the cat. To make it fat? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm curious to see how that, right? Because they're also sort of teasing a potential move in this book, right? Christy's like, when she finally 
breaks down and agrees to babysit Watson's kids. She's like, oh, this living room is nice. I could, you know, I guess I could have a fireplace. I guess I could have all this other weird stuff that is supposed to signify wealth. Like, <laughs> And so I assume that we're going to, we see her morbid of destiny more. And I think it's an, it was an interesting choice to kind of establish her visually as a, as a witch uh-huh. when, when uh-huh. like, I, I'm not sure that that's a deserving <laughs> yeah. designation Fair or maybe it's, a, maybe it's a compliment. I don't know. So, so from this book, you know, I think there's a lot of think pieces on the internet about how feminist the Babysitter's Club books were and mm-hmm. how they shaped like, you know, Gen X and to a lesser extent, the millennial, your generation um, with their feminist ideals. And I'm just wondering how much of that you feel like holds up from just the first book from the introduction. Um, I don't know. The introduction didn't read overly feminist to me. Mm hmm. Uh, it's, there's some subtle things that are cool that like the girls have, you know, like agency and their parents respect them and they're, um, kind of working against some little bits of sexism in their own worlds. But there's also a lot of ways in which that stuff just kind of gets uncritically reproduced, right? Like the boy who doesn't want girl babysitters the like arguments that the some of the babysitting charges have over whether girls can play with trucks or whatever it's just Uh like it doesn't it it doesn't go too far in sort of transgressing any of that it kind of like uses that draws on that as a sort of backdrop for setting the girls up to kind of like you know have be architects of their own lives in some way and to sort of like give them power or whatever Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'll be curious to see how it does. There's also, I'm really interested to see how they deal with the moms because I think that will be a good indicator as to like how feminist the books really are. I think Christy's mm-hmm. mom, like the way she talks about it, um, her guilt over like how much time she has to work in order to provide for the family is really interesting because that's kind of like a, a very typical sort of feminine form of like affective labor, right. That you, she's like, um, not supposed to be working. It's like not a good reflection on her as a mother, except that she's providing for them. So that's like being, she's being pulled in both directions in that uh-huh. sense. And she like shares her guilt with her children, which I think is interesting and like potentially, um, you know, like a good jumping point for her to talk about stuff like that with her kids. But I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know like how much the moms, see gender as like shaping their own lives and how how much they'll work you know work with the girls against that or yeah with Mm -hmm. that right like help help free them versus socialize them into the same system yeah yeah Yeah. i mean it doesn't help that like the the thing that they create is just a reproduction of how we already distribute care work. Right. <laughs> so right. like, you're, it's mm-hmm. like, it's women already limited. Yeah. yeah. It's already a little bit limited in its scope in that sense, I think, but I think how they do it will like really matter for like how feminist it, it will be. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I, and yeah, I, while we're on the topic of Chrissy's mom, I have a little bit of a sidebar, but it's very, very important, which is that in chapter 13, when Karen asks Christy if she's her mom's daughter, she says, is your mom Edie Thomas? 
She says Edie, like short for Edith, and Chrissy's mom's name is Elizabeth in every other book. Wait, really? And I was like, who's Edie? And I got really stressed out. I did I not know really. Maybe an early edition. Um, you guys didn't notice. She says, is your mom Edie Thomas? I, I mean, I saw that, but I didn't, it didn't register. 124. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like ran into the other room to my two children and I was like, girls, look at this. And they were like, what? So anyway, I don't know if she is changed her name. Yeah, weird. Oh, no. Weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> Anne's book just broke now. Oh, no. Emily, Emily broke mine in like 1990, so I don't feel so bad for you. Oh, Wait, what if Chrissy's mom gets married to Watson and changes both her first name and her last name? <laughs> that's probably, that's probably uh, what happens. Does she change her name when her and Watson get married? I think she hyphenates. She hyphenates uh, Thomas and Thomas But Thomas is already like her deadbeat ex-husband's last name. Right, right. True. But I think yeah. she keeps the Thomas to keep, like your mom did, to keep the same name as her children. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So, Emily, before we move on, anyway. you mentioned that Claudia sat for that boy who hated girls. Yeah. Can we can we talk about that? Because that's something I definitely did not not pick, on, pick up on as a kid how that boy like hated women and girls. And uh, this is the quote from the book. Rob hated girls, which included Rosie, Brenda, Jamie's mother, his own mother and girl babysitter. (laughs) Like that is like, this boy is like how I forget how old he was, but he, I don't think he was more than seven years old. Um, No, I think he's like five. Oh, he's five. Like, is that something That's, that was really young? Yeah, like how would how would how would a boy that young learn to hate women? In your opinion, so, so, I mean, it's the eighties, so it's the eighties. Um, well, or I guess me too. I actually noticed though that so that's like the most glaring kind of case of it. But there's also like David Michael is wary about playing with girls and or mm-hmm. playing with kids that are too young. And and there's a lot of like kind of wariness of the opposite sex in general in, in the book. You know, Christy's like part of her lamentation about not about still feeling so young and like such a baby is how they, how like Claudia views boys now, as opposed to how she views boys. And there's kind of an interesting way in which the, like the separate spheres of the sexes are sort of maintained at, at each like age mm-hmm. level for whatever reason. Um, so I just looked it up and Rob is eight, which is so for my mind too old to be saying this kind of stuff. So I think those sorts of comments are really common in preschool because that's when kids are first understanding gender identity. Um, and so they do a lot to define themselves. Like I stand over here with the boy. If I'm a boy, mm-hmm. I stand over here with, which is why PS sidebar, it's so important to get kids books about gender expansive behavior in the preschool years so that kids who may not identify with the binary are not already boxed out when they're like too little to have any words to understand it back to back to the gender binary firmly in place in 1986 and christy's great idea um it's a really normal time for kids to understand who they are and where they fit in um, with a bunch of different identity things, but gender being one of the most salient when you're three and four, right? And so um, so that's why, like, at 
you know, I live in Berkeley at my kids' like super hippie play-based preschool. They did a lot of sort of reverse gender socializing around like, oh, look at how well, you know, Rob takes care of the baby doll. It's, you know, boys are really caring, you know, and like, ooh, you're, you know, June's nickname at her preschool, my younger daughter was Muscles um, because she was always, all the teachers called her Muscles because she was like climbing on the play structure and stuff. And they talked about how strong she was all the time. But I I would say if he was younger, it would just be a developmental stage. But like, Mm -hmm. clearly people have not disabused him of that notion and haven't done enough counter conditioning um, to, and uh, look, They've got all kinds of really bad behaviors, these Jamie Newton's cousins is. Oh my um, god, and they're and, like <laughs> pretending to kill Claudia. Like yeah. what? Yeah. I have fuck? to I have to say, like as an interventionist, Claudia did some amazing what we call DRO, which is differential reinforcement of other behavior. So her like planned ignoring and her reading the book and like luring them all to her. I was like, yes. I was very excited. <laughs> ignore that's that was in all caps yeah yeah so good uh where did she learn that strategy again from her oh from oh where did she learn that strategy i think it was from her dad oh it was i think it's how he like with mimi i believe no, I think right? it's, or yeah. maybe me did it. It's how they dealt with Claudia and Janine when they would fight when they were little. Oh, you're yeah. right. Yeah. I-G-N-O-R-E. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. But she didn't just ignore them. She reinforced the behavior she wanted to see in Jamie, which, which is an important thing. If you want kids to stop bad behaviors, you can't just ignore them. It doesn't work. You have to reinforce the thing that you want to see. The, the reinforcement is the important part, not the ignoring. Mm-hmm. Pro tip. Wow, we've learned so much. Anna and Martin really missed out on yeah. elaborating that. <laughs> and and you got to get us out of this academic okay. haze that Emily uh, Emily and I have right. tranced into. <laughs> Too much behavior in yeah. one episode. If we have any listeners left, um, <laughs> um, so so what I think is interesting is Anna and Martin obviously wrote these books to be very evergreen. Like there's not a lot of reference to a lot of things going on in the current world of 1986. Um, So, but, you know, even though they talk about the girls a lot and like they flesh out the personalities and they kind of describe them through, you know, their behavior and what they wear and like what they eat. There's really like not a lot of um, like, we don't know what they read or what they listen to or like any of like what they watch on TV, you know, it's just kind of, as part of just like building a series, it's just something that you just don't do um, in general. So what I did is I thought it'd be interesting to take some of the top artists of 1986 and figure out which, which of these um, each like Claudia, Stacy, Marianne and Christy would listen to, you know? So this is kind of a free for all. No, no answer is wrong. (laughs) Okay. So uh, I'm going to throw out a few few bands and artists and see what you guys think. So is it what who they are or what they would listen to? Sorry. What they would listen I to. Okay. What they would listen to. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So we have Lionel Richie. My <laughs> this is this is this is a strong this is a strong Christie for me. Lionel Richie. Interesting. Wait, why? Yes. Why? 
I feel like she <laughs> defend that answer. <laughs> I mean, Lionel Richie's great. I feel like Chrissy listens to. Um, she's not portrayed as being super artistic, so I feel like she listens to the radio a lot, and probably to what her mom listens to also. And I feel mm. like her mom, okay. her mom well, likes Lionel Richie. Okay, so it's not that Christy likes Lionel Richie. Yeah. Wait. But okay, that's interesting though, because would she listen to what her mom listens to, or would she listen to what her brothers listen to, or would she intentionally not listen to what her brothers listen to because they listen to it? That's a good question. Yeah, I just think she's not that interested. So I kind of like Anne's theory. You took you took both <laughs> me and Emily by surprise. It's good that it's not a video show, but we were both like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm buying I'm buying your argument um, mm-hmm. because it would just be kind of whatever's on in the background. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I was I was just anticipating not knowing how to reason this out for Marianne. Oh, see, I'm getting a very strong Whitney Houston vibe for Marianne. I like yeah, that felt really? really easy to me. Yeah. Cause I think she's a romantic and she's sensitive and she like has all these dreams of like love and adulthood. And I feel yeah. like Whitney was like at the height of her fame in the late, the mid to late eighties and was like super sophisticated and gorgeous. And like oh, everyone, yeah. yeah. Her, and like being enamored with Stacy's life in New York city. And exactly. All that stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I that. So like Whitney, Whitney and Marianne, like a hundred percent. Yeah, that, that makes yeah. total sense. I feel sense. like they would all like Whitney. I mean, I think they'd all like Whitney, sure. I don't think anybody would be like, bleh, because yeah. who doesn't like Whitney, you know? Right. But I think Mar- she would be like one of Marianne's favorite artists. I agree. Do you think she would like Madonna, or is she too scandalous? Or is that interesting she to Marianne? I don't think her dad would let, let her. I don't think her dad would let her listen to Madonna in 1989. Yeah. But exactly. She- but I think she would like it. I think she would mm-hmm. like it. Like she would listen to Claudia's house and she would like her, uh-huh. but she right. wouldn't be allowed to have her tapes at home. Right. No. Okay. So Claudia definitely is a Madonna fan, obviously. And Cindy um, Lauper. <laughs> yeah. I would I say, say Cindy Lauper. Um, what's interesting is Claudia and Stacy, as you said, both have their periods. So they have a similar level of sophistication. <laughs> is this canon now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but since Stacy is from New York and Claudia lives in Connecticut, I feel like they have similar tastes, but Stacy's are a little bit more sophisticated. So I feel like Stacy is into like yeah, that makes sense. The Human League and like maybe Pet Shop Boys, like that yeah. kind of music, which maybe she's turning Claudia onto. But Claudia is uh, like yeah. into Madonna, Cindy Lauper. Like, you know, Janet Jackson, maybe the more like uh, pop on the mm-hmm. radio, whereas Stacy is maybe going in a more little bit like divergent path of just what is, you know, bubble like new wave type. and like yeah. new wave yeah. type of stuff. That makes sense. So, do you also mm-hmm. think she would be into like Blondie and the Talking Heads? Mm. I feel like she's not quite there, maybe in like three years <laughs> in high school. Yeah. That makes sense. In high school. That makes sense. It's high school. Yeah. yeah. It's like they're at the they're at the beginnings of, of exploring the musical taste right now. Yeah. I mean, she's only 12. I need mean, so like, <laughs> Yeah. Right. But back to Christy, I would like to also uh lump in Peter Gabriel and Billy <laughs> Ocean and with her and with her listening taste. 
So it's just like all of Edie slash Elizabeth's AOR favorites. That's like yes. what's on Christie's playlist. That's exactly. So exactly. Okay. Um, but I would like to talk a little bit more about Marianne because I feel like your Whitney Houston explanation made a lot of sense. I feel like Marianne has a lot of hidden, hidden yeah. likes that she doesn't talk about. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I think she'd be into Janet too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I noticed that I, I don't, none of us have mentioned any like hip hop acts. Um, and I wonder if this that's reflective true. of the fact that Stony Brook is a very white place right. and yeah. they, can, they can manage to listen to some black vocalists with pop hits, but not any right. actual like rap or hip hop. Right. Um, speaking of Connecticut being very white. Um, yeah. I remember, so as me and mine's like other best friend, Michelle, who we also grew up with, mm-hmm. um, she went to NYU for college. Mm-hmm. And I remember her telling us what her her roommate in the dorms had never had Chinese food before. And she was from Connecticut. <laughs> what? And that was like my impression of Connecticut <laughs> for like, Years. like when I was 18, I guess. So it was yeah. like, oh, wow. Like Connecticut. Wait, what? They don't people haven't had Chinese food there. Anyway. This ties back to the Visitors Club because when Watson brings Chinese food for everyone, they use silverware. Mm-hmm. Not they don't use chopsticks, <laughs> which I found interesting. And also spoke a lot about just their, you know, maybe their exposure to Asian people in general. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like there probably weren't a lot of, you know, Chinese restaurants or like I feel like it was probably very quote unquote exotic mm-hmm. that, they, that, that they even had Chinese food and speaks to a level of yeah. sophistication for Watson. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. Thank you for your like it's a Asian class signifier. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a class <laughs> signifier. And I think pretty much every episode will have Anne being Asian watchdog for like weird <laughs> white people right. behavior around <laughs> their Asian friends. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, nice. Speaking of, speaking of the word exotic, Esme has something she would like to share. Yeah. So speaking of exotic, thank you, Anne. Um, I'm going to be keeping an Excel spreadsheet and doing a count throughout the course of this podcast of the different sort of trope signifiers that um, they use to describe each of the babysitters. So there are several that come up across the course of the books. Um, and some of them are sort of benign. We, we haven't met Dawn yet, but Dawn's hair is always described as long, long, long. Um, and, and, you know, that's not necessarily putting her into any kind of box, but there's a few of them that come up frequently. And so I'll, I'll be giving a count for the book we're on and then a cumulative count across the series as we go forward. So um, not surprisingly, since the books are in first person from the girl whose name is in the title, we don't, Christy actually Shocker does not describe herself as bossy. Um, so that is not present in this book. But we do get that Marianne is shy twice. Mm-hmm. We, uh, Claudia does get called exotic, which I believe is a euphemism Wait, for Japanese. But yeah. the context in which she gets called exotic is really interesting. Did you catch it? No, tell me. Claudia I'm just looking for the word. Herself. Oh, really? Yeah. And she. Wait, I made a note of it because I was like, this is really fascinating. Um, it's in the beginning, oh, I think. Yeah, page 25, when she's like goes over there and she's wearing makeup on her face. Um, 
she's like, oh, you got made up for the circus. I mean, it's so colorful. And then Claudia's like, thanks a lot. And then she's like, you don't need makeup. You've got such a beautiful face. And then Claudia says, oh, you just think it's exotic. And then Christy explains like why she thinks it's exotic. And she says, well, maybe I do. Claudia's parents are originally from Japan. They came to the United States when they were very young. Claudia has silky jet black hair, dark eyes, and creamy skin without so much as a trace of a pimple. She's absolutely gorgeous. Isn't that interesting? That is really interesting. So it's introduced her. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, I know what you think, white girl. Uh Yeah. 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 So, but that's the only reference to exotic in this book is Claudia reminding Christy what she thinks of her. And then Stacey is described as sophisticated twice. Um, And we'll, we'll see this play out frequently. These kind of Connecticut bumpkins with this New York socialite. Um, So, so that's where we are on trope count. Um, I'll also be looking for um, things that uh, make us SJWs cringe in 2020, um, sort of socially inappropriate terms that we wouldn't use anymore that are present in 1986. But I'm proud to say that this book does not have those. So um, those will be coming in the forward. Anne, were you keeping track of anything specific? Something very important that will contribute to society greatly. Um, I am keeping track of Claudia's candy. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. So, Claudia, as you know, uh, hides candy around her room because her parents don't like her eating it. Um, so, in this book, we have bubble gum, but does not specify what kind of bubble gum, whether it's like <laughs> bubble gum or like a gumball. I, I, I imagine like Hubba Bubba. Perhaps. Fair enough. Bubble issues. Um, yes. A chocolate bar, also nondescript, but I'm assuming Hershey's. <laughs> Twinkies, very specific. Twinkies are mentioned a lot in the series, uh, which I would also like to mention. I went to Esme's house as a kid to eat Twinkies because my parents would not let me have them. Uh, Jawbreakers. <laughs> Gummy bears, I assume Haribo, the best gummy bears. And then a questionable wintergreen lifesavers. Wait, 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 hold on. Back up, back up. You assume they're Haribo because you like them the most or because well, that would have made the most sense in Connecticut in 1986? No. Well, it's because, okay. Haribo makes the best gummy bears. And if Claudia considered herself a candy connoisseur, she would only buy Haribo. Yes, that's what she would get. And then, as I said, questionable. Uh, I'm sorry, more, more to say about uh, Haribo. I'm just checking Anne's facts here. It was founded in Bonn, Germany, which Anne and I have been to, but we did not go to the Haribo factory, which is I travesty. Know, um, I don't know. We didn't know. Wasn't in Let's Go Europe. Um, and it was founded in 1920. So Claudia could indeed have had Haribo gummy bears. Yeah, sorry. of course. One more candy, and that I I interrupted. Oh no, I was just talking about how um, questionable of the wintergreen lifesavers because those aren't that exciting. But <laughs> that's not real candy. I mean, it is, but also you can you can crunch those in the dark, and they make little sparks. So I was thinking maybe that's why she has them. <laughs> just for a fun factor. Yeah. yeah. Reasonable. 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 Great. Okay, so I'll be keeping track of that. And then another thing we've been keeping track of is uh, are the weirdest lines in the book. Because for some reason, 
the these 12 year olds speak like they're in a like 1940s like classic movie or something so one of my favorite lines was what a mess of a cat oh my god that's good which is in reference to why would they even uh, have a strong opinion yeah it's it's very strange Uh, like why would they care that much yeah yeah what a mess of a cat yeah um, you also liked a Mrs. Porter line, right? Oh yes, Rapscallion. So what was the? You had two. Yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah. Boo-boo, Mrs. Porter calls Boo Boo a Rapscallion, which is pretty good. So you and Emily had the same favorite line. Do you guys want to give some t- context and do then do a dramatic reading? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. Um, Emily, do you want to be Claudia and I'll be Christy or vice versa? Okay, great. So um, this is sort of things come to a head because Christy's big mouth. She's at this is asking Stacy what's up. Stacy lied to them at this one point in the book um, saying she was in New York when really she didn't want to go to their pizza party because they didn't yet know she had diabetes and they were going to eat a ton of junk food. Um, And so they didn't want to Stacy lied instead of telling them the truth. And Christy Christy confronts her because Christy's like, what's up? You're in my club and you're supposed to be my friend and you lied about where you were. Marianne saw you. And so um, Claudia is coming to her defense um, and basically calls Christy out for being a baby um, and says that she doesn't have any tact. And so then um, I'll start from the bottom of 134 of Christy's response to that. Um, Yeah. Well, how do you think I feel being lied to? I shouted. Talk about tact. It made me feel like a little kid. You are a little kid, said Claudia. Look at how you're dressed. I looked. What's wrong with the way I'm dressed? Really, Christy? A sweater with snowflakes and snowmen on it? You look like a four-year-old. Well, you've got sheep barrettes in your hair, I yelled. Do you think they're adult? Sheep, Claudia informed me witheringly, are in. <laughs> it's so good. And I would like to uh, alert our, re- our listeners' attention to the fact that in is italicized. Yes, very italicized. So apparently in 1986, sheep were in, Claudia was in the know, and sheep dot 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 are in in italics is um, my vote for best line of the book. I agree. Although, what a mess of a cat is quite good too, Anne. I'll give you that. I do like sheep are in because I feel like it is referring specifically to the Spumoni sweatshirts that Michelle used to wear with puffy animals all over them. We had him too. We had him too for yeah. sure. I uh, like. Yeah. I think we can. Um, I think we can throw up a good picture of a sheep spumoni sweatshirt on our Instagram for our listeners. Um, I bet we can find a good one. Yeah. So good. Okay. What should we pizza toast to this episode? Ooh. What's pizza toast worthy? Puberty. I mean, <laughs> puberty. Oh. <laughs> periods. No. <laughs> the absence of periods. <laughs> <laughs> the entrepreneurial spirit i don't know candy oh, capitalism? And capitalism yeah start off episode one pizza toast no. to be capitalism. <laughs> what do you what do you think Ann? um i mean i feel like we can something nice would be like friendship mm-hmm. something uh i i mean it I feel like the book was the whole series is based on capitalism because Christy was like, we can make money. Like we can like buy pizza. Someday when we do more, Mr. When we learn more about Mr. Spear, I want, I want to talk about how weird he is with money in this book or like that 
Marianne has to like make a case for why she's going to save a certain amount so that mm-hmm. she can spend $3 on pizza. Like what the fuck mm-hmm. is that about? Yeah. I will get well, there. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll, we'll hear a lot more about Mr. Spear and Marianne saves the day. Yeah. But um, you know, I think, yeah. I think maybe we should pizza toast to Anna Martin. Oh, oh, that's fair for the very you first know, episode. For the very yeah. first episode. It's <laughs> very nice. Without her, we wouldn't be here. Absolutely. <laughs> All, All right. right. Let's do it. Pizza toast to Anna Martin. Pizza toast to Anna Pizza Martin. Toast. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org backslash shop backslash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling deeply generous and you want to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for. 